Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to Sentimental Garbage, the podcast where we talk about the chiclet that made us who we are. My name is Karen Donahue and I'm a writer and a long aside about baseball. Joining me is author and the heir to a hair pomade fortune, Sarita Domingo. <laughs> if only. <laughs> Today we're talking about Unforgivable Love by Sophronia Scott. Hi, Sarita. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thank you for introducing me to this book and to this writer that I don't think I would have heard of otherwise. I'd love to know how you came into this book and why you chose it today. Well, I think I'm not quite sure actually what, how I came across it. I think it might have been something I saw on Twitter a couple of years ago because it is quite a new, well, relatively new uh, mm. book. It came out in 2017. Um but it was the premise that hooked me because it's a retelling of dangerous liaisons or les liaisons mm. dangereux. Um, Excellent pronunciation. <laughs> and I love, love, love the film uh, Dangerous Liaisons, the John Malkovich, Glenn Close retelling of that story. Um, and then this book, it's set in 1940s Harlem, African-American um, character, so it's like a retelling of Dangerous Liaisons, and I was like, put the two things together. I love it. I want to read it. So yeah, that was sort of what drew me to the story generally. Um, and I wanted to read a love story that featured an entirely black cast. Yeah, like I was. I, I generally feel like quite snobby about retellings in general. Mm. Um, like, what, what's your like? It feels like every like three years, someone comes out with like a new, like Pride and Prejudice. Except this time, the Ben and Sisters are like firefighters or something. <laughs> and I'm always like, oh, give me a fucking break. Um, yeah, I mean, it, but I love this retelling. I I know what you mean in that it kind of it feels like well, someone else has done the labor of thinking of this whole narrative, and then you can just swoop in and sort of redo it. Um, so I get that, but, and, and I'm not necessarily always drawn to read, you know, like, it's not like I'm a retelling junkie or anything, mm. but for this one, it just seemed like a really genius idea to sort of move this story into this environment. Um, yeah, so that I was, I was into it. Definitely. And it's, it's like definitely a point of view, because like, Le Liaison Dangereux, mm-hmm. Dangerous Liaisons, <laughs> yes. Cruel Intentions as I best know it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, and actually, I read um, an interview with um, Sophronia Scott, and she said that like she was really into the film *They Just Liaisons*. Then she read the book because she was so into the film. And mm. then there was just apparently a summer where they kept replaying the film on cable, and she just always found herself watching it. And I just, yeah. I really relate to that sort of high-low trashy <laughs> sort of <laughs> like she read the original text, but she also loves the trashy version with Ryan Felipe. You know, yeah, which but, I like. I definitely saw that, but for some reason that did not connect for me in the same way that the the 1988 like sort of um really I guess faithful retelling because obviously if people don't know it's based on um a book from like I guess the 1800s or something um Mm. that a French man whose name I know I won't be able to pronounce I think it's Pierre de Chac something I don't know I'm not going to attempt it but he wrote the (laughs) original he wrote the original um, story, you know, set in like French society, um, and it has been retold numerous times. Obviously, quite famously as uh, "Cruel Intentions," but yeah, I, I don't know. I just yeah, this this version of it was just something that really was like right on the money for me. And it's like it's funny because 
that that uh, that original version, the one that was written in France in the 18th century, mm. you can when whenever you sort of um read a retelling or see a retelling of it or whatever, it always does have this sort of like very um like I don't know what the kind of word for it is. I haven't really studied this, but when, you know when when every there's a lot of mustache twirling going on. Yeah. Like the evil characters are just evil, mm. and it's like everyone ends up sort of dead or pregnant, kind yes. of thing, or married. Yeah, and it's like very like everything is very knitted up in the end, which mm. could, can feel like when you're trying to read about it in a, in a novelistic way with sort of slightly more contemporary characters, even though they are in the forties, it yeah. can feel like very harsh strains to put on modern characters. Yeah, but like I think yeah. she really gives them such depth in a way. Mm. I found really fascinating and a real like masterclass in character building yes yeah um and and it's interesting i'm sure we'll get into it but um and i only really realized this later on but she has kind of tweaked the ending so she's yes. sort of changed some of what happens to the characters in quite an interesting way i thought and i found it interesting whose stories she's tweaked and who she's left sort of as they were um, yeah. Yeah, particularly with the the sort of central female characters and like what she's let them do or not do in this yes. version. Definitely. I'm gonna before we go any further. I'm gonna get into the plot summary. Yes. Um. Which bec- I mean. The thing about this is, even though I had seen Dangerous Liaisons, mm-hmm. and even though I had seen Cruel Intentions, it's still such a complicated plot mm. that it like, really, like, it actually did keep me guessing because there are so many characters, there's so much overlap in who's sleeping with who. Yeah. It's a lot of scheming, a lot of meddling, a lot of interplay. <laughs> a lot of, like, rubbing of hands together. <laughs> yeah. So... Unforgivable Love is a retelling of Dangerous Liaisons set in post-war Harlem among an elite set of the wealthy African-American upper classes. Among them, we have May May Marveau, a beautiful, conniving young widow whose desperate need to be loved is offset by her need to destroy other people's lives. She is obsessed with her similarly conniving friend, Val Jackson, and two of them decide to prey on Elizabeth Townsend, a devout married Christian, and Cecily, an innocent young virgin who has just been brought back from North Carolina for an arranged marriage to one of May's former lovers. Over a single summer, Cecily is deflowered, Elizabeth falls for Val, and almost everyone is either pregnant or dead. (laughs) 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 Yeah. I mean, it's hard to keep up even in the, as you say, in the summary that you're like, oh yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah. And then on the background of all of this is just like the most sort of gorgeous, gorgeous, and I think a little used setting, mm. I think, of the, the Harlem Renaissance. And yeah. this this thing that like, I'd only really heard of because I'd sort of studied it tangentially at English at university, mm. but this real like moment, this like eruption of like jazz culture of poets and there's like they're all name checked throughout the book there's Ella Fitzgerald there's Langston Hughes Cab Mm -hmm. Calloway all these people um and there's really emerging like black middle and upper class that was happening in Harlem yeah this sort of sort of the post-war um boom like I guess yeah the Harlem Renaissance and just the the opportunities that African Americans had sort of post-war to really genuinely dial into that American dream feeling yes. that they could be so sort of um May Marveau's character her mother I believe was based on Madam C.J. Walker who was um allegedly the first self-made female millionaire in the U.S. and which is fascinating that she was an African-American woman um so I think but what I really love about um, the story of unfor- the setting of unforgivable love is that it's it is it's this insular space that um, African Americans have this sort of opportunity to to be so wealthy and um, to have that sort of privilege that we might associate with a, a different um, situation altogether, but it's it's all kept within their community, so they're sort of interplay is all in a high society sort of um, setting that we don't usually get to see as you say but 
yeah, they're just sort of they're 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 able to keep within their own community and have this sort of um, wealthy, I guess, aspirational setup. Yes, yeah, it's <laughs> it's so good and it's so much more because the thing is when you're used to seeing when you have these kind of period settings, mm. you either and if there are like black characters or even non any non-white characters yeah. involved it's either they are the person on the fringes who has mm. to sort of make do and sort of like sort of skirt around sort of white upper class yeah or it's like a kind of a civil rights story or something and the yeah fact exactly that this is so decadent mm, they're, they're wasting so much time exactly yeah there's so many characters and like even there's like um Elizabeth's husband is like a civil rights lawyer yeah. and his story is so sidelined. Yeah, <laughs> it's just like a function to get him out of the way. He's like toiling away, sort of helping these struggling individuals down south and like yeah. I know it, and I, I I love that and I feel like it's almost like a wink from Scott herself mm, just being like you've heard his story. Yeah exactly. <laughs> the story yeah, we're gonna yeah. hear is the decadent time wasting too much mm. money too much free time story. Yeah exactly and it I mean obviously the story does kind of, it obviously it doesn't completely ignore the sort of um, racial situation that would have been going on at the time, you know, we get the mention of Jackie Robinson, I think. Um, Jackie Robinson, who was a baseball player, who um, Val Jackson's character is really enamoured of. And um, Jackie Robinson breaks the colour barrier in baseball. So he's the first black uh, baseball player, I want to say, to play for the... I'm going to pretend I know anything about sports. Yeah. The Yankees? I, mean, I don't know. I liked this book a lot, but the place where it lost me were the long asides about baseball. Yeah. Like, I was just like, don't understand any of this like sexual discourse about innings and pitchers. Exactly. And exactly. Other than the fact that it gives the opportunity, like in the, in films where they're like, let's play golf and like someone needs to address <laughs> someone's swing. It was that, that's like, that was the function for me. I was like, oh yeah, help her hit a baseball or whatever. But in terms of, like, I think Val's character, as far as I understand from having read a couple of interviews, Sophronia Scott used Jackie Robinson as a way for Val's character to see that there's sort of some beauty that rises above the ugliness that they're experiencing. Because I guess Jackie Robinson was very... um, noble I hesitate to say the word but he kind of Mm. just tips his hat to the crowd that's like braying at him when he first steps up to the plate and so he's a real character um and I think that that's really the only function that Scott is using race as a dynamic for like she's not ignoring it but really the only white character in it is the one that Cecily meets which I'm sure we'll talk about you know what, let's just get to her now, because what I found so surprising about Cecily, who is the sort of the young, virginal character, the one who's mm. played by Reese Witherspoon. <laughs> no, the one who's played by Selma Blair. Is she Cruel the Intentions. Selma Blair one? Yes, yes. yes. In Cruel Intentions, yes. yeah. Yeah, she's the one who like <laughs> has that like slow kiss with Sarah Michelle Gellar that confused yes, so many of the, us as young the girls. Old, uh, spit- the spittle, old spittle. Um, <laughs> what? honestly the spittle heard round the world I know yeah for lots of us (laughs) um but the 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 Selma Blair character as it were who I think in basically all adaptations of this story is the sort of silly kind of figure of fun she's so virginal she's so innocent it's almost like poking fun at like um you know the idea of this sort of like nubile young girl who's coming in wide-eyed mm. but weirdly in this book in this retelling even though i was primed for her to be the character i ignored the most mm. she was the character i loved the most yeah 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 because cecily in this book so cecily comes into the fray as it were because we have the two sort of um more seductive deliberate characters in may marvo and Val Jackson, who was sort of older, they're used to using their sexuality to sort of scheme and seduce and just have their fun in their high society sort of um, environment. But then Cecily, she really comes into the plot because May 
is displeased that Cecily, this like young, innocent, virginal character, has been selected by her former lover to be mm. his new wife. Like he basically wants to marry a virgin, and um, May is angered by this because I can't even quite remember. She's just <laughs> she doesn't like the she idea just- of. Literally all the toys have to be hers all the time, even when she's done playing with them. Yeah, she's kind of insulted. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. So Cecily's character is, she's supposed to be this like virginal, lovely, innocent girl. But when we meet her, she has been, um, she's been sent away by her mother to go and live with her aunt and uncle in North Carolina. So like away from this sort of Harlem high society She's like on a farm learning how to, I don't know what you do on a farm, like shuck peas, I don't know, all this kind of like farm living type stuff. And she is a, I guess, she's a young woman just coming into her sexuality kind of, but not really aware of it at the time when she's away in North Carolina. And when she goes walking in the woods, like she goes off into the woods to, I don't know, decompress. Think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And she encounters, as we were saying, the only white character in the story, kind of, which is this strange man she sees, like, super communing with nature, like, literally kind of rutting around in the dirt. And it's quite strange. Like, it's a really, uh, that, the whole, their encounter and their dynamic really sticks with me from the book. Because then later on she goes to get a pair of shoes and she realises that the guy selling them shoes is the same man she's seen in the woods, that they haven't interacted at that point. But, yeah, it's really... I think that sort of uh, moment is a bit of a sexual awakening of her. She doesn't quite know what she's seeing when she sees the man in the woods. Yeah, he's basically, for want of a better word, like jerking it into the earth. Yeah, (laughs) which is very strange. Like, I don't know where that came from. I don't, I haven't really encountered that in any other adaptation. Yeah, yeah. It it really, it really feels like something very, it's one of the only bits of the book that like doesn't feel like it was drawn from anywhere other than just a part of Sophronia Scott's brain that she just needed to express but like, I found those sections in North Carolina so beautiful. Yeah, lovely. And, which I was so surprised by because I don't like reading about trees normally. <laughs> not, like not when I trees. hear about like a, a character's like awakening in the outdoors yeah. or whatever, I'm like, come on, like get get to get to shagging. But like I could yeah. really, I really, really enjoyed like that whole section and there's a yeah. whole bit as well where it's like because Cecily has grown up in Harlem in this very sheltered way um, and she sort of feels she doesn't really know who she is like mm. in her and the this, this story of her kind of coming to know her own body yeah. is a really gorgeous one and like you see her in the woods and she sort of begins to notice like the rhythms of sort of nature and how mm. things grow and change and different times for different plants yeah. different things for different yeah. animals and there's this brilliant I really related to it I really remembered this as like being a very formative teenage girl memory where like I think when she's moved over there she has start like has been having her period for like a year yeah and it's one of these yeah. things where like her mother is like oh keep a note of when yeah exactly. but like regardless <laughs> Mm. she's still always so surprised by it oh completely forever staining her knickers (laughs) yeah exactly so relatable yeah so relatable and then she has this thing where she's kind of in the in the countryside for a few months and she's really growing to love it and she loves her aunt and uncle and she starts to sort of listen to her body in this Mm. really intuitive way and she she, she's like this beautiful paragraph where it's like she could feel her body getting ready for something and then it Mm. like sort of gathering and breaking and she knew it was and it was like I just I loved that sort of framing of like a a woman's like menstruation as being a sort of a a flag for like her getting to know herself better yeah really great yeah definitely and it's interesting that her character returns to that place don't want to do maybe spoilers I don't know maybe we can do spoilers but I I um, spoiler a lot yeah but she and and you really do feel the wrench when she she's just getting to know herself and then she's sort of her mum turns up and says you're coming back to Harlem to marry this like old man basically 
and but she she is also sort of fertile she's ready to experience herself physically and also experience falling in love because she she then meets Sam's character um who's her music teacher and they fall in love and sort of she's betrothed to this other person but secret she has this secret affair going on with Sam um and they're writing each other sort of cute little notes yeah so their their romance is initially still quite innocent but then of course the manipulation comes in and she becomes the subject of Val's seduction um at the behest of May. Yes. Because May wants Cecily to ha- kind of be spoiled for Frank, the guy who Cecily is yeah. meant to be marrying, who's May's former lover. Keeping up. <laughs> There's quite a lot going on. <laughs> it's a lot. So, yeah. So when May asks, she sort of makes a pact with Val to get him to seduce Cecily. And then she sort of sort of, May offers herself up as the prize um, if he's successful in sort of deflowering Cecily, which is like really quite, it's quite uncomfortable, that scene where he seduces Cecily. Yeah. Because it's kind of assault. Really. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Not yeah. even kind of. I mean, I guess <laughs> she eventually submits to it and does, they do begin an affair but it that's one of the most difficult aspects of the story for me yeah and there's definitely like with that character of Val Jackson he is he was the long it took me the longest to warm up to him I think Mm. I I mean warm up is probably the uh, the wrong word to use because I think for the earliest chapters of the book it's very like God, he was hot and he knew it and he could have any woman he wanted and he hated them all and then he chucked them into the street and left. <laughs> although he has a he has a very good system whereby like he has a ch- like his valet like has a church dress ready yes. <laughs> for all of his one night stands in the morning and so they, they don't the have to dress. walk of shame yeah yeah which I think is very considerate <laughs> um, and uh, and yeah and it was and then he sort of like fixates on Elizabeth Townsend. It's yes. kind of this dual pact of like um, mm. he has to sort of seduce Cecily, this sort of young country virgin, and also Elizabeth Townsend, who's this very she's like twenty seven. She's been married. She's married to a civil rights yeah. lawyer. She's a woman of God. She really mm. knows herself, and she's mm. very quite sure of herself. And he has to sort of seduce both of them. Yeah. So Elizabeth is his his own sort of project, I guess. And yeah. then Cecily, he's seducing for May, but I guess May picks up on the fact that he's decided Elizabeth is somebody he wants to conquer as well. So she's like, well, actually, you have to succeed in all these seductions before you get to me, the grand prize kind of I thing. Oh, what a move. What a power yeah, move. Like- exactly. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, like- so he he goes ahead with the seduction of Cecily and yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it is hard to warm to somebody who's like a charmer and a se- seducer, if, if that's the mm. word, um, and especially what he does with Cecily. But then he also does kind of allow, he sort of facilitates her awakening sexually. It's a very difficult line to tread, though, because obviously it's not voluntary on her part. Yeah, yeah. It, I, I think about this a lot. Like, this is this is good. It's so unrelated and such a tangent. Mm. But you know how, like, every year there is this big thing about baby, it's cold outside? Yes. Right? <laughs> yes. There's always this, like, should we cancel baby, it's cold outside? And rah, rah, rah. And it's like, it, it's kind of like relaying very modern sexual mores on top of a very old song. And this sort of thing with that song is that like, you know, the I really can't say all that sort of bartering that they do. You could, under one under a curt modern end, you can call it sort of date rape or rape culture mm, or whatever. Mm. But there's there also is a very real thing where it's like to, even if as a woman in that time period, even if you do want it, even if you do feel that longing you're so conditioned from a like cradle level to reject it that this culture 
of like I don't I don't know what to call it of like pushing past a woman's resistance when you know mm. that resistance isn't real. Mm. Well, and it's a difficult it's a difficult thing because it that is kind of a trope in a lot of traditional romance, particularly yeah. old school romance where it's like she's saying no but she really means yes and it's kind of like the job of the man to elicit this response out of the woman I mean exactly the dynamic of baby it's cold outside the kind of yeah. no, no no I really mustn't so that the woman has to perform a sense of innocence and the man has to break down that resistance somehow which I guess because Sophronia Scott is writing based on a story that is from the 18th century or whatever initially that that is uh, it's a difficult it's difficult to adapt that sort of um, seduction to a more modern interpretation. And I know yeah. we're in the 40s here, but but I think what she, the general sort of um, way she deals with the sexuality of the female characters is very interesting because she kind of, yeah. she has these three different levels, like grades of woman, um and, and where they are with their sexuality. So Cecily is completely innocent. She's not even really sure what her sexuality is. And then Elizabeth is very pious, as you, you know, like she's a very God-fearing, dedicated to going to the church. And she sort of feels that sexuality is something she has to reject or that it's only between her and her husband. And she mustn't give in to any feelings of sort of desire. And then you have May, who is very in control of her sexuality and has been for a very long time and just uses it as a tool of manipulation. But even she kind of is angry at the way that Val gets to just be shagger about town and be really open (laughs) about it, whereas she has to be all smart and seductive and, like, give the appearance of being a woman of, you know... A society or whatever that can't be very open about her sexuality yeah and it's really interesting with may where it's like um so her she she is like a sociopath like she yeah feels yeah. no regret or resentment about any of these lives she just sort of casually destroys which is so much fun to read do you know what I mean mm. it's like we're, talk- we're talking about like modern lenses and like all this but it's like ultimately it's like it's fun it's pretty it's great yeah exactly but I think May is the character I feel gets the sort of shortest shrift because the other characters you kind of get to see them grow and change whereas May I think the way she's dealt with May's character is really interesting because we have that there's a prologue where May, as a younger woman, has her, like, a close friend, Alice, who Mm. um, they have, like, a semi-sexual relationship. There's kind of an implication that May is in love with this girl. So, and I'm not quite sure if Sophronia Scott is trying to imply that May is gay and that Mm. her seductions are all sort of... Because at the very end of the prologue, she... Um, Alice gets married off to this man because she gets pregnant by... I can't remember if it's the same guy she gets pregnant by. I don't think so. But anyway, she ends up pregnant and her mum marries her off and um, May is distraught. And as Alice, is like almost as she's being dragged away, she spots some guy, which I think is actually the man she's really in love with, and tells May, you have him for me kind of thing. And mm. May very calculatedly says something like, he's the he's the first guy she's going to get her revenge on or something. And that's yeah. really early in the book. He would be the first to pay, um, she says. And that's kind of setting May up as this, using her sexuality for revenge, which is really delicious to read. And it's fun to see a woman so in control of her sexuality. But she doesn't really get to fall in love or like she doesn't get the combination of sex and love that the other characters get. 
she's just kind of yeah. a manipulator and she's cold-hearted. And then at the end, her comeuppance is that she's just shunned by society, whereas everyone else kind of gets a redemptive moment. Well, not everyone else, but kind of yeah. everyone else gets love or redemption or something. And I feel like May gets like really the short straw. It's like, is that the... the um, Because she's so in control of her sexuality, is that the result that you get as a woman? I don't know. Yeah. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. There definitely is this thing, and it comes back to a lot with May and with Val, that they, they are these two characters that just fundamentally, they don't know how to be happy because, mm. like, there's this wonderful quote that I have in here somewhere. So this is a, um, something that another character, Rose, who's Val's aunt. Aunt, yeah. Mm-hmm. Aunt, yeah. Says about May. There are people in this world who can never get other people to love them the, the way they want to be loved. It's like they spend their whole lives on their knees in the dirt in the woods trying to light a wet match. Can't spark nothing. The more they can't, the more the more they want to burn the whole forest to the ground. I can tell she's one of them. Hmm. And I love how that's really well put. And I, I do recognize that person and that it's that same thing with Val where it's like to be happy with another person and, and both of them sort of like May wants it so badly. She wants this love that mm. is um, yeah, exactly. intangible to her because it requires a level of vulnerability that she will never be able to give. Mm. And so she says like, for example, she, you know, Sam, who's the music teacher who falls in love with Cecily, mm. she sort of like takes Sam from yeah. Cecily and takes yeah. him to Paris and like shows him the world in this incredible way. And, then she, he still doesn't really love her. He has sex with her, but he doesn't really love mm. her. And she can't fathom why he would still be so interested in Cecily. Yeah. It's this thing where there's this part of her that will never be accessible and therefore she can never really be loved. Mm. And I, yeah, because early on in the book, I actually, I have a quote as well when we're, um, so the chapters uh, dart between like the four characters and in one of May's early chapters, um, it says, uh, May didn't want love. She didn't care that it... May did want love, sorry. Uh, May did want love. She didn't care that it didn't last, didn't care how easily it could be broken. What she cared about was how every human being seemed to walk the earth clutching at love, but she couldn't do the same. And later on, it sort of talks about how her mum gave her all this safety and like kept her um safe from want and safe from greed and safe from need like she didn't want for anything um but she um there's a line that says but it also meant she was safe painfully genuinely horrifically safe from love so it's kind of like she doesn't even know how to access love yeah or be vulnerable as you say to it Whereas Val kind of get he's blindsided by it because he thinks he's just seducing Elizabeth because she's like all pious and he's like, oh, what a challenge kind of thing. But mm-hmm. then he genuinely falls in love with her and he's like, what is this feeling like? He can't <laughs> quite compute what's happening, but he is genuinely in love with Elizabeth and does come to recognize it. Whereas uh- Maid never gets that. And it's just like, oh. 
<laughs> yeah, no, she never she never gets any form of like like the plot never thanks her in the way mm, it does with the, exactly with the rest of the characters. But I feel like even just giving her that emotional depth of being yeah. this person who both wants yet can't understand how to have love does give her that level of layeredness, which mm. You you you're not rooting for her, but you do sort of applaud every now and then. Oh like, yeah. The weird the weird thing about her character is that like so she's very upfront about the fact that she wants to ruin Cecily's life just yeah. for her own amusement. Mm. But then she also well she like, really wants to ruin Frank's life and Cecily's the way she can do it. Yeah. Yeah, and um, yeah, and 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 so Cecily's just a tool for her, and she mm. doesn't really care about her sort of internal life or mm. what happens to her. And it's very brutish. But then she's having this conversation with um, Cecily in, in her rooms. And she's just like, look, now is the moment you have to decide what kind of woman you're going to be. Like, mm. you can you can have every you can have Val, you can have Sam, you can have your husband. Like, you can literally, you can do, like, if, as long as you learn how to master your own sexuality mm. and sort of square the circle in your own head, you can, the world is yours. Like, she gives her this amazing piece of information, yeah. really, that... Even though she's being manipulative, it's also her entire credo, you mm. know? Yeah, I guess in a way she's, or thinks she's being kind of generous in giving that kind of advice. And in a way she is, because it does free Cecily in a way to sort of explore her sexuality with Val in a way that is just like, I mean, he's a skilled lover or that kind of thing. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that's not often the experience of a young woman to find someone who knows how to deal with a woman's body or whatever. But then she can, so her plan is to sort of use that knowledge with the person she actually loves, Sam, so that they get the combination of the two, you know, she, I think there's something interesting going on about sex and love together. Um, Mm within this story and you know who gets to achieve that and who doesn't get both yeah it's very it's so true and it's so and it's so and Cecily is the only one who gets to have it really mm. yeah um and, and what's interesting it. as well and keep it yeah um what's interesting as well is that this thing of um I think about this a lot with the kind of fiction that we cover on this podcast mm. Which, um, some of it is quite, it's either set in the past, so it's dated in that way, or it's mm-hmm. dated in that it was written in the 80s, mm-hmm. where there is a lot of, a lot to do with sort of, um, huge age gaps, um, a, kind of a sense of, like, tutelage always going on between, mm-hmm. like, uh, oh, he taught her how to be a lover, yeah. and all, all this kind <laughs> all that sort of mess of stereotypes mm-hmm. and stuff, and, like, I, th- there's obviously like a modern, quite twittery lens that's like, well, that's all, that's all <laughs> yeah, fucked up. Yeah. But then that thing is like those those values don't carry over to the fantasy people want in romance. Mm. And I think in particular the people who read these books the most, which are like quite young women who are just yeah. like reading adult fiction for the first mm-hmm. time. Like maybe they've just they've just graduated off Judy Bloom and they're mm. like, give me something raunchy. I need to know everything. <laughs> yeah. Or like maybe quite older, maybe quite conservative women, but they they love the kind of the fantasy of it is is like, what if you didn't have to do anything and the yeah. guy would make all these decisions for mm. you, and you would just be swept along by this current and the thing that would make you so irresistible is your lack of knowledge and your lack of experience and I think that's a big thing for young women reading. Mm. Yeah, I think it's so interesting that. That endures, it truly endures in a way that I find fascinating because in modern day society, and as you say, in this sort of Twitter age where we're not supposed to want to engage with that kind of idea at all as women, that is still a perennial theme in romance, in romance that's written to this day. And Mm. and it's not like those books are all rejected and everyone's like, no, we can't possibly read this. So there's something to be said for women who have been told you have to be strong and um, there's got to be equality and you shouldn't want this, um, 
you shouldn't want the your your sexual partner to be the person who takes charge mm. but the fact that that is still something that people crave says something psychologically about our society that I can't quite put my finger on but it sort of a relinquishing of control is something women I think deep down still kind of crave and I don't know if it's even just women I think it's people kind of Mm. don't want you know ideally particularly in something as vulnerable as sex you kind of don't want to have to also negotiate the idea that someone won't know you truly or won't know what to do and that you might have to you know do something about it so that's why it is a fantasy and romance is kind of a fantasy so it's really interesting the, the the this whole idea of seduction that you can just be sort of merrily going along on one path and then someone like blindsides you with their deep sense of sexuality and you're sort of consumed. It's really interesting. And that's what's so interesting about the dynamics in this book as well. Like obviously Elizabeth, who to a certain extent is aware of like the potential of sex, but has made a deliberate choice to reject it. But then Val comes along and she, the you know, it's almost too hard for her to resist. And in a way, maybe, I don't know, is she the one more in control in their relationship in a funny sort of way, even though he's supposed to be the seducer? Yeah, no, th- there's a really, I actually think that those, um, towards the sort of the last third of the book, when... Elizabeth and Val are together mm. is some of like the best romance writing yeah. I've really I've mm. really read. Mm. It's really affecting yeah. um in a way that I probably won't be able to give that really sent chills while I was reading it, but I probably won't be able to give much um credence because I'm a terrible reader. <laughs> um and yeah, this this quote I just underlined a lot. It's like mm. He wanted to wander over every area, every scent of her, and to remember. Remember because it seemed he knew her before and had only forgotten her. He had been out of his mind for centuries until this moment when he recalled where he should be. Mm. And there's this sense of, like, this... And when they finally do get together, when they finally do sort of admit their love for each other and they and they meet and they have sex, they, they just both weep in this sense that they are each other's, like, home. Yeah. In a way, like... I've heard that, I've read that so many times in, in like romance books where it's like, oh, you're someone who's like home to me. And mm. it's become almost like a cliche in itself. Mm. But this was the first time that it, really an author spent three pages spent like doing, what does that mean when yeah. someone says that? Mm-hmm. So like, I feel like she spends an awful lot of time on like the emotional calibrations of sex and love and what that yes. means. But you actually don't get that much like bang on bang. No, you, know? you really don't. For, for a book that kind of is in a way all about sex and sexuality and how people wield their sexuality, it's not actually re I mean, there's maybe one or two like kind of, gra- but not that graphic at all. And there's not really yeah. that much description of sex in like a functional, physical way. It is more about the emotions or at least the two are tied together. Like she does a great job, as you say, of combining the sense of what the emotional impact is for the characters as well as the physical. Um, yeah, I just think it's it's also interesting what happens to Elizabeth as well, like at the end, you know, yeah. her ending. Which you is should we, should we talk about yeah, her ending? If yeah, yeah. Let's go for it. <laughs> mm. I mean, spoilers. Because, spoilers well, yeah. Spoiler alerts. Yeah. But um, and it is also kind of it's tweaked from what happens in the original. But Elizabeth um, commits suicide. She jumps out of her window um, after having been broken up with by Val, kind of at the behest of May. Um, and she sort of doesn't realise that he's, or I guess he thinks that he's just kind of going to break up with her for May's benefit and then he can just go back to Elizabeth and mm. see, like, you know, it was just a ruse or whatever. Um, but she's so distraught at the loss of Val that she 
takes her own life, which is sort of an odd... So in I think in the um, original, that character just gets smallpox and sort of fades away. Mm. Um, but her sort of... I guess it's a choice. Uh, I hesitate to say that, but... Yeah the sort of loss of his love is like too much for her to bear. And I, yeah, I'm not quite sure how I feel about her doing that and her that making that decision. I mean, what did you think? Yeah, I kind of, I, I, do, I, I did know that, that like from the offset, they can't be together, right? That because... It's it is this doomed love story and everything, and there is the it gets very murky after because that whole bit is so depressing because yeah, it's, it's just, very very. Um, they have this beautiful like, like he's chasing her for an entire summer, and he realizes that this love that he's been pretending to have is actually very very real mm. and means everything to him. And so she says this brilliant thing about like originally it was about this thing about. He his mission was to sort of erode her piety and erode her goodness and so, to prove that it was all false and that he could penetrate anything, mm-hmm. quite literally. <laughs> yeah. But actually, actually, what it ended up doing was he, her goodness ended up sort of eroding away at him and it made him a better man mm-hmm. as a result, which is, like, it was like, it's really, really beautifully written. And then he sort of, and he, he sort of reacts to it, he almost like he can't settle with this new personality and then rejects her and he sort of sleeps with prostitutes and sort of mm. basically shoves it in her face and then he um it gets very uh anxious about his reputation being lost and what that means and then he just dumps her so he can sleep with May and then mm. May rejects him and then he's like, What the hell am I doing? And he goes back to Elizabeth and she jumps off the yeah. top of her building. And the entire time with her, she's just being like, I, she's, I, just, I don't know how I can go on. And I, I don't know. I, I, I enjoyed it from like a dramatic point of yeah, view. Yeah. But from a, like a, dramatic. what does this say about this yeah. strong character who mm. like, she's the, the only real character who is like, oh, I mean, they're all very like witty and there's a lot of like barbed banter, mm. but she's able to really give back but while still representing a very wholesome point of view yeah but she's still a very rich character and she's able to like go beat for like toe-to-toe with him all the time and then for her to just like jump off a building you're like yeah (laughs) i mean i guess she kind of gives in to her desire and then she i mean it does strike me that this she doesn't see we don't see her get into a lot of anguish about what about my husband like she doesn't really consider him that much and I guess at one point he they speak on the phone and he's quite dismissive of her so I guess maybe she feels that's justification but I mean what now that I'm thinking about it I suppose that Elizabeth sort of jumps so that um, Cecily can fly yeah <laughs> like she kind of and I think even Cecily might think about the the image of her jumping out of the window later on in the story but Cecily is the only one who kind of gets everything that everybody wanted like she really gets her cake and eats it too by the end of yeah. the story um just thinking as well is that like is that image is quite that sort of you know, people, the, the, the building jump thing. Mm. It reminds me a lot of, um, have you ever read Passing by Nella Larson? Yes. Yeah. Which is, which is a book from yes. this time period. Yes, and it that's is. How, yeah. yeah. And like, I think a character, yeah, character you, just, she does. Now that you yeah. mention it. And that's so interesting because there's also mention within, um, Unforgivable Love. Elizabeth is reading The Street by Anne Petrie, which is a real book that's set, um, yeah. at the same time, you know, in Harlem in the 1940s. And I, I haven't read that myself, but I think it's similarly melodramatic and quite dark and depressing. I don't think things end up too well for the central character in that book. And I I have the sense that Sophronia Scott has been kind of patterning Elizabeth's journey on, like we see Elizabeth is the one yeah. reading that book within this book. So that sort of 
sad trajectory that she has maybe is inevitable and it is melodramatic and the whole book feels like a melodrama um so I guess sort of from a narrative point of view maybe it just plays into that sort of tragedy um and also the sense of it goes back quite early in her character that like the tragedy of Elizabeth is um is like a death by a thousand cuts in a sense because mm. there's obviously the Val thing, but there's also the sense that like she's this great mind. She like went to Vassar, yeah, yeah. And which weirdly I like. I googled that because I was like, oh, were black women allowed in Vassar in 1940, mm. whatever or whatever? And they and they were. There, yeah. there, there was a uh, very yeah, famous that didn't case. Didn't occur to me. Yeah, yeah. Um and. The and, and the sense that like she the only thing that she was ever got praise for was her piety and that was the only mm. place where her intellect could shine was like her interpretations of scripture and then like sort of she sort of betrayed her church by becoming this woman yes this woman for for Val Jackson and she's betrayed her marriage it's almost like there's no avenues left for her to turn to mm. yeah know? she's kind of like in a way in giving in to Val she's just kind of like fuck it I just want to be in love yeah of great sex but then there is nowhere else for her to turn she obviously can't tell her husband by the way I'm in love with Val Jackson like that wouldn't have worked she probably couldn't turn back to the church so maybe in a way she sort of takes that choice to be like well I've had everything that I wanted and if I can't have Val that's the end of the line for me kind of thing which is sad but I guess Kind yeah, of it definitely is a melodrama. Yes, yeah, yeah, because obviously Val also, you know, spoiler alert again, but Val doesn't <laughs> doesn't make it all the way to the end of the story either. <laughs> but he has like a really big arc of redemption that May doesn't get to have because he sort of it turns out that even though he has this reputation as being kind of amoral, yeah. it. In the end, he was like donating to the church, and it's such like a Shakespearean yeah. thing. Yeah, like so oh, he, he was noble after all. Yeah, he kind of sacrifices himself. Um, so he goes to it's because um, Sam has found out that Val has been sleeping with Cecily. Val deliberately sort of waits till he can have an encounter with Sam. Um, and then, like, certainly in the uh, Dangerous Liaisons film, there's actually a duel where he does he sort of kind of commits suicide but doesn't. Mm. So he's actually wounded by Sat, the Sam character, whereas in this, in, the, in Unforgivable Love, he shoots himself. Um, but it's quite a, like a martyr kind of act yeah. so that he gets to... I guess have this, yeah, this arc of redemption because it turns out he's impregnated Cecily, but he gives them like loads of money and Cecily can go and be with Sam. So he gets this big and redemptive story. Sam opens a club story. in North yeah. Carolina. Yeah, <laughs> a little juke joint. You know, it all yeah. ends up fine. Well, not fine, but like Val, it's just, I do find it interesting that Val gets this whole arc of redemption, whereas... May, who really isn't doing anything different to that than what mm. Val is doing, is ostracized by her society. And, you know, it turns out, you know, like they sort of expose her as a liar because she's been saying that she's been um, donating money to the church. And obviously the church was quite central to mm. that society at the time. But you know, and she's sort of shunned and spat upon and, you know, run out of town almost. Just... Yeah. Literally run out of church. Yeah, yeah. At his funeral. Like, yes. literally, they're Where at they're his all funeral. Pre- yeah, like, oh, we had this guy wrong. <laughs> and instead, everyone, you know, yeah, the whole sermon is about how she's a snake in their midst and she is literally spat upon and sort of runs away. And it's like... I fell for her. Oh, yeah. yeah. I just... It's just really... I think that's a really interesting, you know, like I'd quite like to see the story reversed and have the May type character have that redemptive arc and the man mm. is the one who's just like shunned. But yeah, 
Yeah, it's, it's, it's never going to be that way around, mm. is it? Just... <laughs> I mean, just the only never. redemption you do get from a female character is that Cecily gets to have had the sexual awakening and she gets the man that she loves and she's having this baby she's set up for life um, and she gets to go to the place, you know, back to North Carolina, which was where she felt happiest. Mm. And the story ends with her basically having everything she could want. I really loved that as well. I loved the sort of relationship in the book between the North and the South. Mm. Because, like, there's definitely this narrative with African-American literature where it's, like, um, leaving the South for the the Northern cities for a better life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly, the Great Migration. And the fact that, like, this character goes back to the South and that's where she makes her life. And she's like, no, I don't want to be in this city where nothing Mm. grows. Yeah. And I want to be in nature and like I I deserve this and I this is mine and and she really takes ownership of that mm. in a way that feels really like 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 I don't think Scott puts this like big like oh and this is what I'm doing here yeah. but it feels really moving. Definitely. Because this is a bit earlier on when her aunt sort of says to her aunt is sort of talking about the various sort of like racism that they've experienced mm. while living there and it's she says Cecily wondered aloud why they stayed. Aunt Pearl shook her head and looked at her as though Cecily should already know the answer. If we left Cecily, then the better place would always be somewhere else. Mm. And like that, this thing of sort of like making making your life in this place that's so like so dangerous for you yes. or whatever, but finding yeah. the peace in that. Yeah. Lovely. Yeah, it's almost like a rejection of that sort of um, American dream idea, you know, and the sort of power corrupting um an absolute power corrupting absolutely yeah. it's sort of a rejection of that because the the characters that are so drawn to being in america drawn to wealth and drawn to wielding their power i guess you know may val they're the char- mm. the characters who end up dead and i guess elizabeth for for buying into that also ends up dead whereas cecily rejects it and she's always felt most comfortable away from it. And she's the one mm. who gets to thrive. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's definitely, it's definitely an interesting dynamic. And it's interesting when, when um, May and Sam go off to Paris. Is it Paris? Yeah. And they um, they do touch on the idea of feeling freer there and that, you know, black people, black Americans obviously did go over to Paris and felt like they were treated more as equals or human beings or intellectual Mm. equals yeah but it's really yeah that I think it's more the nature as you say it's the sort of connection that she has with the true what the world around her and growth and um a natural change rather than sort of being forced into a position yeah finally um, Safrina Scott has said that like she would have loved to have this been a film mm. and apparently it started as a script Yeah. how do you think it should be adapted and who do you think should play the characters well I mean it does obviously it's the story itself has been made into a film many times but with this one it's so cinematic like her description yeah. is so gorgeous and, and the clothes there's so much like yeah Dior you can just and, imagine oh, how sumptuous because that's I think that's something that you miss or certainly I miss with like Cruel Intentions where, you know, it's very 90s. <laughs> Doesn't yeah, Joshua no. Jackson have like some bleached hair or something like frosted <laughs> tips are happening. So, but with um, Dangerous Liaisons, the sort of 88 version where they're, they're in like the French petticoats and, you know, everything's all gorgeous and sumptuous and powdered wigs and stuff. With the 1940s Harlem, yeah, you could, you really get that sense of, like, the costumes will be all gorgeous and the music will be amazing. Yeah. But in my head, I was picturing Mahershala Ali the whole time as Val. He has that gorgeous, gleaming smile oh, yeah. um, that I think would be perfect. And for May... I was thinking Tessa Thompson for me. Yeah, maybe Tessa Thompson. I think she could do it. Or I really am a fan of um, Susan Kelechi Watson, who is in um, This Is Us. She's the wife of Sterling yes, K. Yes. Brown. 
she would be great. She has that kind of edge to her. I think you, and I think Tessa Thompson has that as well. But um, I can't really, I don't know with the other characters, with Cecily and Elizabeth. um, Yeah, I'm not sure, but it does feel so ripe for a film adaptation. I'd watch the hell out of that. It feels really ripe for like a big Netflix adaptation. Yeah. Yeah. Or even like like a, one one of those like big crazy rich Asians opening weekend. Yeah, exactly. Like, exactly. Yeah. 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 I, I mean who who would be responsible for that? I don't know, but I'd love to see it. Yeah. <laughs> so um tell me a little bit about your, your new book which came out in June. You were lucky enough to also be a fellow pandemic author. Yes. So my salutations to you. <laughs> Yes, um, I mean, it's another black love story, which I think is what I love so much about Unforgivable Love. Um, but my yeah. book is called If I Don't Have You. And uh, it is a story about a black British woman. She's an artist living in New York. And uh, she, for some crazy reason, really wants to stay in the States. And so she <laughs> has sort of secretly agreed, not secretly, but she's agreed to marry a guy who's her business partner just so she can stay in the States um, and continue her business, which is sort of like a web magazine. And she's also uh, uh, an artist. And Mm. she is sent to interview a film director. He's really hot. He's American. Um, Their sparks fly and they end up being grounded together in New York by a storm. They both are at the airport, meet each other again, um, you know, sort of later the day after they've had the interview and fall in love over the course of a night and sort of a before sunrise-ish Ooh, way. hotel. Yes, well, yes, very much so. And then <laughs> they decide to kind of just keep things going when she has to go back to London. But various things get in the way and secrets and all sorts. Um, and then they get a chance to reconnect years later. It's in sort of three parts. Oh, wow. Yes. That sounds um, lovely. And like, where, um, sexiness level, where are we at? Are we sexier it, than It's pretty sexy. Love? Yes. Mm. It's pretty sexy. <laughs> yeah. So what's your approach to, I'm writing a book at the moment where um, it's, on which I didn't see coming, but hmm. it be, it's really become about the sex scenes. And I'm hmm. like, wow, this has become more about sex than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> what, how, what's your approach to writing them? I mean, I I do actually kind of, I like the approach that Sophonia Scott does with the kind of thinking more about how, what what's the emotional takeaway from this scene? Why are they interacting in this way? What happens? Mm. So I think I'm quite conscious of what, kind of sex they have and what that says about them as characters um but other than that a it needs to like genuinely feel sexy like Mm. not kind of icky (laughs) i don't know it's quite hard to describe but um it's a very blurry line yeah exactly yeah because obviously if bad sex really sticks in the mind on the page and in (laughs) probably in real life too so i think (laughs) making sure that it seems like it would be good um depending on what you're writing of course (laughs) like i'm writing romance where the idea of the interaction between the characters is pretty good of course of course you can have sex where it's supposed to be bad or something bad's happened or whatever but um yeah, I don't know. I think it's just sort of just going for it and not really thinking yeah. about like, oh, someone's going to read this. It's really embarrassing. Like I never. But it's, then I started it's out always writing that mission in divorcing. Fiction. Oh, you started out writing erotic fiction. Yeah, that was the first stuff I had published, which was not intentional. But I work in publishing, and way back in the annals, I worked at a place that won the. Um, publishing for Agent Provocateur, the underwear company. They were doing an anth- two or three anthologies of sexy stories. And even though I worked in like sales and marketing, I was like, well, no. can I try? And they liked what I wrote. And I wrote like three or four erotic fiction stories, never written any erotica before. Um, but I just, that was the first stuff I did. And then they asked me to write an erotic novella. 
and all sorts. So I guess I had the <laughs> had a grounding <laughs> in in sexy stories. That is amazing to me. I can't believe that like you literally like most people like fight to keep this kind of thing from their colleagues, but you yeah. were like <laughs> <laughs> pretty much. I don't really know what guess... came over me, but I was like, yeah, I, can r- I guess I just wanted big to move. Something. Yeah, of course. Oh my, I'm. So respect the hustle on that. That's so cool. What an amazing way into writing novels. Yeah. yeah, so I mean, but then the next, the book I wrote as my actual, like, proper debut that wasn't commissioned was, no, there was no sex, there's no sex in it. It's quite sad. So I guess I, like, kind of moved away from that for a bit. But for this, for If I Don't Have You, I kind of just wanted to, particularly with black love stories, you hardly ever get, a story that is devoid of trauma, which, mm. I mean, it's a shame that Unforgivable Love, a lot of trauma in there, but kind of... <laughs> yeah, but they bring it on themselves. Yeah, exactly. Than, like, and, it, and like I say, it's within it's within their own community. It's not like there's sort of a white um, gaze coming in and saying, like, and, and that's the source of all their troubles. So, mm. but with If I Don't Have You, there's not even, there's no... Well, there is kind of melodrama, but no, nobody's flying off buildings or anything. Um, <laughs> it's just, yeah, I just wanted to write a romantic story that was genuinely between two black people and them just trying to figure it out um, in kind of a realistic way. But with that sense yeah. with romance that there's always that slight guarantee that uh, like you kind of feel at least they're going to be together by the end of this story or it's kind of in my mind at least not really a romance at least if they don't have like a happy finale situation by the end of the book but yeah that sounds wonderful and very sexy (laughs) because really I feel like I was promised a lot of sex for Unforgivable Love and yeah, I didn't get that didn't much really, so I feel like yeah, I'm going to be making up the difference with your book <laughs> yes I hope so I hope so this has been Sentimental Garbage and I've been Caroline O'Donoghue you can follow me on Twitter at Zaraline that's C-Z-A-R-O-L-I-N-E or email me by the podcast at ZaralineO'Donoghue at gmail.com this has been a Justice for Dumb Women podcast. Thanks to Harry Harris for the jingle, Gavin Dave for the logo, and Acast for the recording space. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 